Hello, and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, the Northern Doctor Who podcast that I nearly forgot the name of just there. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Kieran. I'm Bethan. And I'm Jacob. And today we are doing the second half of our coverage of Season 7. We're going to be looking at the Ambassadors of Death, and we're going to be looking at Inferno. And then we will be talking about how we'd rank the season as a whole. So, let us start with Ambassadors of Death. Open the capsule. They are not cleared for re-entry. Charlie, you're back at Space Control. What's wrong? Open the hatch. Hello, Space Control. This is Recovery 7. Will you clear us for re-entry? Let me try. Hello, Van Leiden. What is the capital of Australia? We are not cleared for re-entry. How many beans make five? Hello, Space Control. This is Recovery 7. Will you clear us for re-entry? Van Leiden. Not cleared for re-entry. Right, cut it open. Now, for myself, I we obviously we rewatched um, separately and together these stories in preparation for doing this episode and uh, these episodes, I should say, and. Ambassadors was actually the only one I hadn't seen before. Uh, I'd seen, I'd seen Spearhead loads of times. I'd seen the Silurians through a couple of times. I'd seen, never seen Inferno straight through, but I'd seen all of it at times. Ambassadors I knew nothing about. Uh, and so I was actually really, really pleasantly surprised by it. I'd heard that it was good, but I was, I was surprised at just how much I enjoyed it. It's still too long. Uh, but I kind of think every Doctor Who story that's more than four episodes is too long, really. Um, and even some of the four-episode ones are too long. But I think it's, despite that, it's gen- generally pretty well-paced. It's got it's got some really good performances, actually. And uh, I, I like the kind of the general spacey spy thriller vibe of it. And we'll talk about more in a few minutes. And yeah, I think I thought it was a real... It's a real kind of hidden gem, I think. It's a... Of the stories in this season, I think it's the one that gets talked about the least, and I think not n- not deservedly so because I think it's it is a real gem. Yeah, I mean, again, um, I really liked and was surprised by Ambassadors. Um, I promise that there are Doctor Who stories that I don't like. It's just that this is a particularly good series that we've started on, I think, mm. and so there's going to be a lot of broadly positive sentiments. But um, I think that Ambassadors is a really cool idea. And I think it's clever how they managed to work some outer space stuff into a, a series that takes place entirely on Earth. Yeah. Um, and I think they did it really effectively. Mm. Again, I think it's too long. Um, um, but yeah, having having not seen it for many years, uh, I'd practically forgotten most of it. And so I was I was also pleasantly surprised uh, by by how good it is. There's there's some really good direction for starters. They're trying to be creative with the format even in spite of the fact that it might have its limitations. And yeah, I think overall I really enjoy it. I really like the the kind of the thriller aspect of it. I'm not so sure about some of the music uh, that goes along with it. <laughs> yeah. But um, but th- yeah, I think I think that 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 kind of thriller element works really well with the Earthbound format, mm-hmm. um, and I think it pushes the story along quite nicely. I think a good place to start actually is by um, talking about the context again. So again, this is broadcast in 1970. 
uh, which I imagine means that it would have been kind of being written and even to a lesser extent in production not that long after the moon landings uh, in July mm. of 69. So from that point of view, this is a this is obviously a very kind of spacey, <laughs> space-bound or space-oriented maybe um, Doctor Who episode, but in a way that is quite different from a lot of space-bound Doctor Who episodes in that it's from an earthly perspective. Mm. So it's specifically about the space program. And it's a very optimistic portrayal of the space program, obviously, as we know, um, because uh, let's not get into the dating of it, but we have a space program that has kind of reached Mars, or is about to at least, and that has obviously, as a result of that, kind of kept going from the moon, which is something that in, the, in 1970 probably seemed pretty obvious. Like, well, why would we not be doing that? From a contemporary viewpoint, we kind of know why not. And it turns out it's really expensive. But that vision of constant progress, I think, is a really interesting one. It's one that you can, if you really want to, you can sort of broaden out into a kind of a, while not certainly not utopian, it's kind of an optimistic sort of near future in general, uh, where that kind of technological material progress, uh, you can... If quite happily broaden that out from space program to something else. In terms of the sort of um, presumably this is quite the recent future for people watching it or like contemporary but because of the space element we're assuming it's a little bit further ahead. Would you say this is the most optimistic that Doctor Who's ever been about the amount of progress that we will make in the shortest time? Yeah, that is actually. Um, I ask that not at all knowing the answer, but it just mm. seems like in other instances where we have a vision of mm. either new contemporary technologies or a v- mm. vision of the recent f- of of like soon in the future, mm. it seems like the gap is more before it yeah, yeah, puts yeah. like space. Mm. Because obviously there's quite a few instances now where they show the future and that future is now our past. So we know that unfortunately I don't have my like moon base. <laughs> yeah. But it seems like really that they were they were going big. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I mean, um, what do either of you happen to remember what the date in the waters of Mars is? Because I, oh, I no. feel no, like I that's that. not a million miles from where it was mm. when it was mm. aired, which I think was 2000. 2010. 2010, yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I do feel like it was fairly... It wasn't, like, the distant future. Yeah, It was yeah, something yeah. that was sort of... Yeah. Weird, well, yeah, because he takes... Again, spoiler, it takes him back at the end, doesn't he? Yeah. And it's relatively similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to It's a kind of a, a contemporary street, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah that, that's, that's something that would be worth going away and thinking about, actually, because I... I really don't know the answer but like mm. I kind of admire just the boldness of it yeah yeah absolutely. <laughs> because I mean why not really yes mm. and it's kind of cool to see a story set around a official space program that's just making these still quite pioneering steps into space exploration it's kind of different from the if you end up on a space base in the future and it's kind of been there done that it's kind of mm. just showing the first steps of reaching out 
It's really cool. I just, I think that it's an audacious move, but I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from that, what's interesting there as well is that on the one hand, this is a kind of near future, sort of vaguely near future um, vision, but it's also very contemporary mm-hmm. um, because this is sort of, and the other side of what I was talking about with the Silurians in terms of the Cold War setting. This time it's just a different kind of aspect to it. It's um, it's space-based, again, um, which obviously in the context of the having just come out of the 60s, where quite a lot of the Cold War sort of energies was built around the space race. You've also got, again, you've got a concept of foreign agents, which in this case, actually, the the foreign agents turn out to be less foreign than was originally thought. Mm. Um, it's more kind of like false flag operations and stuff like that, which is still obviously something that's very kind of, very much belongs to the kind of spy thriller genre. It's even not spy thriller music to an extent, but um, maybe not <laughs> deliberately at all. Um, and even the the notion of like the aliens who are specifically referred to as ambassadors... Uh, the notion of a trade of hostages. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very kind of like... Less Ian Fleming, who I think is a kind of a clear point of influence, but more more John le Carre, actually. Mm. More of that kind of grounded kind of spice rather thing. But then there's the Fleming aspect, which is hard to ignore, really. Um, this is almost the most James Bond uh, Doctor Who story, I think, of the Pertwee era, which is saying something. It's quite glamorous, just in the sort of look of the... Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying that partly because Liz has her best outfit of, does, the, yeah. of the series mm-hmm. in this story, but they have the little sort of space outfits that they wear that are a bit like the... I, a bit like the Star Trek uniforms, but that's just because it's a short skirt, I think. Yeah. But, like, I don't know, it's got quite a cool look about mm, sort sure, of stuff. Sure. And there's that random um, episode that just has loads of stunt work in it. Oh yeah. oh yeah, you know the yeah. one. Um, the one, <laughs> the one. The, good stories to tell about this mm. again, um, which is, uh, I believe that Terence Dix wrote this. Wrote this scene. They had to. They had to basically, in, as part of the plot, get um, incorporate some kind of attempt to steal this rocket um, or shuttle, whatever, whatever it is, mm. uh, and. Um, Terence Dix decided that the way to do this in a cheap and efficient way was to have a sign on the road saying a diversion. The truck would then be diverted and they'd be ambushed. So the cost was basically one sign. (laughs) (laughs) The words diversion on it. And that was it. But of course, the director came along to Barry Letts and said, oh, Barry, can we we spice this up a bit? And uh, (laughs) so Barry Letts naively because he's a new producer oh yeah yeah alright and uh, comes the director comes back later with this bill for a helicopter stunts of people coming off motorbikes apparently it costs something like £300 a go just to start the rotor of the helicopter and they had to do it about three times <laughs> so, uh, and was then, that £300 in 1970? I, I think, I'm sure it was something like that yeah oh. you have to check yeah. the documentary but it was a lot of money anyway. Um, and he ended up going massively over budget. And 
he raised this with the director and apparently the director said and has denied that he said this since well Barry the director's job is to spend money and the producer's job is to stop them spending it (laughs) (laughs) wow hey maybe I could be a TV producer (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean in a way it paid off because like this is one of the more spectacular of, yeah, I've talked through episodes of the classic series, really, mm. Mm. Um, and it does, and I think partly because of that, it does achieve that kind of um, that uh, quite glamorous spy thriller sort of feel. In which case, it's interesting to bear in mind that John Pertwee, back in his naval days, uh, knew Ian Fleming, and I, I knew him quite well, I believe. Um, and there has been this like school of thought that suggests that James Bond was based on, at least partly on John Pertwee, <laughs> which is one of the most entertaining possibilities I've ever come across in my life. Um, it makes me think a lot more favorably of a uh, James Bond potentially. Yeah. <laughs> Same, yeah. But I think I can, I'm pretty sure it's um, you only live twice. Um, has a whole plot element of like a spaceship eating other spaceships. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which does seem like it's kind of apropos to this uh, story um, in kind of a slightly metaphorical way. There is no volcano lair in this story, but there's also no Sean Connery pretending to be a Japanese person. So we'll call it... That's not even a draw, is it? That's That's a definite point in favour of ambassadors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Something that I really like in this story, actually. I think it's very clever in the way it uses the medium. Because it's at the beginning, we have the the guy who's making the TV broadcasts um, about the, uh, the Mars mission, which are presented as kind of part of the episode. And then later on, again, we have him kind of setting up those broadcasts again. And um, General Carrington is uh, General Looks at Notes Carrington. I'm going to write that down because I'm trying to remember his name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is going to make the big TV speech. And there's that lovely bit of misdirection where um, we have what seems to be him making the speech. And then that turns out to be uh, um, just a rehearsal. Uh, it's a nice bit where it kind of blurs the lines. It uses the fact that it's been using that broadcast medium to sort of blur the lines between kind of what's happening on camera in the episode and what isn't. Uh, I think it's a really nice touch. And not not something you see a huge amount of, again, in the classic series. Um, not something you really see that much of in the new series. But I really, really like when the medium gets used in those kinds of ways. There are a few other examples I can think of in the new series which I'll be very excited about when we get to them. I think in terms of the bit where it seems as if it might be the actual broadcast but then it's a rehearsal, I think that's very good. Probably like the best iteration of using other television styles in Doctor Who that I've seen. Mm. Just it's quite clever and I enjoyed it. So another thing actually, another commonality uh, that this has with um, Silurians is the way in which the idea of monsters is undermined. Because um, we have the we have these creatures who are utterly alien. Like, their language isn't at all comprehensible. Uh, in fact, it, it's kind of... 
it's something that a machine needs to be built in order to comprehend their language or even really the fact that it is language. Mm-hmm. Um, they're so other um, that their touch is toxic and will immediately kill a human being. But they're, in t- they're completely peaceful. They're, well, they're, at least their initial intentions are completely peaceful. Um, they're being manipulated by humans. The only reason there's any alien threat is because they've been captured. Mm. Uh, so a little bit like the Stalurians, but even more so, mm. uh, it is the idea that it, it's humans who are kind of instigating this conflict. Mm. Mm. I think in, uh, in About Time, Lawrence Miles and Tap Wood talk about how you can see the story as a kind of metaphor for immigration. You know, bearing in mind that this is this is a time when the far right is increasing in strength. You know, and particularly later on in the seventies, they'll take advantage of a lot of the economic situation to uh, to kind of fuel these sort of xenophobic arguments. Uh, and I think Miles and and Wood just sort of describe General Carrington in 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 terms of of the far right and this idea mm-hmm. that he's he's perceiving a threat from. From these aliens who actually are entirely peaceful, mm, yeah, um, which is quite an interesting interpretation. That is interesting, not least in light of the fact that Carrington is a relatively sympathetic villain in some ways. Mm, like mm, in terms of his yeah. plan is like clearly wrong and clearly monstrous, and mm. um, but he gets a little bit of sympathy even from the Doctor at the end. Mm. The Doctor is kind of like having stopped his plan is willing to kind of concede him some some sympathy. In a way that kind of at least humanizes him, and I think is quite interesting in terms of um, as we kind of move on through the the show, we start to see this more and more. We start to see these individual villain figures like emerging from the kind of the the just the notion of the monsters, and mm. um, but these more individual, very charismatic f- figures. So, again, Davros is a good example. Sutek, very good example. Mm. Scaroth. And I'm a, I know those are all Tom Baker villains, but uh, I think it becomes particularly pronounced in that era. And it, it's it's something that I think... Um, I, I think that's just a sign of the, the program's evolution, really. Mm. This notion of these kind of increasingly strong antagonists, which in, in a way will almost reach its zenith, even before it's properly started, in the next season with the introduction of the king of them all, mm-hmm. uh, the master. So it's interesting to see that beginning to be set up here. I mean, the other interesting character from that point of view is the kind of chief henchman, Regan, um, who has moved on quite well from um, being one of King Lear's traitorous daughters. Uh, <laughs> it's nice to see. Um, and has this kind of this strange role as a kind of lovable rogue despite clearly being like willing to kill the main mm-hmm, characters mm-hmm. explicitly threatening to kill Liz numerous times I think explicitly threatening to kill the doctor as well and it's like I think the the character I always think of him in relation to in that way is um Scorby Scorby from uh, <laughs> the Seeds of Doom, um, <laughs> who has—I cannot say his name in Tom Baker's voice—who um, has that similar kind of um, that similar weird role of being kind of this weirdly charismatic, despite being completely horrible. Uh, rogue. In his case, it's softened by him being Boise from Only Fools and Horses yeah. as well. Um, 
Yeah, I, I thought Regan actually, in terms of his role in the story, reminded me weirdly of Long John Silver. In so far as uh, Long John Silver is a clearly horrible person uh, who like leads a pirate mutiny and is like a murderous pirate. And yet throughout the story, you can feel Robert Louis Stevenson constantly going, oh, he's a rascal, isn't he? Oh, he's such a rogue. <laughs> uh, such that, spoilers for Treasure Island, <laughs> he like it manages to escape punishment at the end. The real treasure was the friends we made along the way. Turns out it was, yeah. <laughs> I um, I wasn't s- such a, a big fan of Regan. He didn't like stand out that much to me in the episode. I think um, I was more focused on maybe just the ambassadors themselves and the fact that they eat radiation. So I think that there's, he's maybe not for everyone, but I can see how like you mm-hmm. might warm to him a bit. I mean, put it this way, I don't like him. No, I'm, not, uh, yeah. I'm not suggesting He's that. interesting to watch. Partly that, but even I think it's the way the episode presents him is he kind of, there's no sense of him being like destroyed and cast mm. down at the end mm. even. As far as I remember, the episode's pretty ambiguous about what actually happens to him. Mm. Um, I It's been a while since I watched it, so don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure on it. Um, certainly, it didn't stick in my mind if anything did happen to him. Although I would say he's not the most kind of memorable villain from this story. Um, <laughs> the most the most memorable villain from this story for kind of the wrong reason is Dr. Bruno Tautalian. The man who is from all of Europe at once. <laughs> I have got the capsule. What went wrong? I don't know yet. They started to crack the code too. What are you going to do about unit? There was this one bit where he was, um, it, it shows a close-up on his face in, in a room with some like pipes on the wall or something, and the pipes are different colours, and Kieran didn't realise that that's what they were at first, and you were like, I thought he was standing by the mystery flag of whatever European <laughs> country he's from. Yeah. <laughs> Which would have been really great. <laughs> I was genuinely, because his accent is so weird and wanders so much. I was genuinely expecting within the episode that it would be kind of a put on that that when the doctor confronted him and revealed that he was a traitor, that he would turn out to be actually be from like Croydon. But, um, you got me. My name's Bob. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly that. Bob Taltalian. I wonder if Taltalian is meant to be his uh, nationality, actually. (laughs) Um, Because I I was assuming that it would turn out like the Reboss operation, where something like that pretty much does happen. Um, Uh, Where there are characters with weird regional accents that turn out to be not their real accents at all. Um, Thankfully. Um, he was in too deep he forgot who he really was (laughs) I think that must be the case yeah he did so much prep he got actual science degrees for this job (laughs) he invented a country (laughs) Chaltalia you mentioned a national anthem (laughs) <laughs> it's just him saying, oh, Taltalia, <laughs> over and over. He is very memorable. <laughs> yes. Mm. Speaking of memorable things, another kind of um, iconic image from this season that seems to have really stuck with people uh, who kind of watch it on broadcast is the image of the 
the assassin astronauts mm. walking towards the base. And they kind of... I assume it's kind of a combination of things. Firstly, the kind of the weird nature of spacesuits anyway. Uh, the, the fact that you can't see a face and uh, the kind of the humanoid aspect of them. And the, the fact that in that case they're moving in a really strange way. Uh, and also the notion of the kind of the inexorable approach of the thing that's going to kill you. Mm. Which is like... Which is a, a constant thing in, in horror films, actually. The notion of the thing that keeps following. No, even if it's slow, it keeps following. There's a, I know there's a film called It Follows, which I have not actually seen. But I believe that that is kind of the case with the monster in that. It's very good. So I've heard. I need to watch it. Mm. Uh, I don't really like horror films, but I still need to watch it. And I mean, the, the kind of proof that it is iconic is the fact that, like the other big iconic image from this season, it is reused in a quite different context in the new series. Um, but whereas for Rose, Russell T. Davies basically reuses the the shot of the, the autons breaking out of the window, but improves it by actually being able to show them breaking the window <laughs> in, for the Impossible Astronaut, and I guess the Wedding of River Song as well, Moffat completely recontextualizes that image. Uh, I suppose in Day of the Moon as well, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he completely recontextualizes that image by having someone be inside the spacesuit. And, well, by having a human person inside the spacesuit. But have it still be this kind of avatar of death. Uh, which I think is actually a really nice use of reuse of that image mm-hmm. uh, in a completely recontextualized way. I mean, I think the astronaut, the astronaut suits are quite creepy yeah particularly when you see them in a context that you don't expect mm, yes um, like in the same way that if you you might not necessarily react with fear if you saw someone in something like an astronaut costume or an old-fashioned deep sea diver costume just walking down the street it would be weird yeah and it would be a unsettling experience probably yeah um and so i think that it's very clever how they chose to play on that because I guess the concept of these astronaut suits was still relatively new or new mm. to like the public mm. eye. So I yeah. think it's quite cool how they like latched onto how it could be used in this menacing way. And also the idea of the fact that they're the suits of the human astronauts that went up to space and they still have like their names on it and everything. Yes, yes. It's quite like and creepy the idea of something coming back but it's not the thing that you sent up but mm. you don't realize um i think that's really quite quite a unsettling idea that they've that they played on very effectively mm. Mm. yeah yeah i mean the notion of kind of something impersonating like a human is a classic sort of sci-fi horror trope uh go back to something like mm. inv- invasion of the body snatchers being obvious sort of example for that um, but yeah, I think this is a, a particularly kind of interestingly contemporary sort of glaze on that mm. in the notion of the astronauts. And also, it's also playing on the notion that was flying around a bit at the time of sort of space madness, of what being isolated in space would do to someone's mind, mm-hmm. um, which is not, obviously not something that actually happens in the course of uh, this story, but... It's still lurking somewhere in the kind of the subconscious sort of web of meaning mm. that surrounds um, these sort of killer spacesuits. Mm. Yeah, or sort of, of like something comes back, but it's different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah so I, I think that the choice of that as the kind of 
the appearance of the ambassadors that we remember because I I think that's the kind of how they're presented mm. throughout the whole of the story pretty much. Mm. I think it's quite a clever one. Um, and also, um, it's a better use of suits without expressions than in the Silurians. <laughs> that's very true. Mm. <laughs> I think there's something of the same kind of um, notion of the suit appearing in completely the wrong place in the Impossible Astronaut, actually. Um, mm. Which we will be talking about mm. in a future episode, yeah. so I just don't want to say too much about that. But um, the, that image, there's, there's something very striking about that image. Mm. In that case, it's contemporary in a different mm. sense because it's contemporary in mm. the time period um, to which it's referring is uh, a previous time period. Mm. Um, it's In fact, it's specifically 1969. So there's a reference back to the show's past that's also bound up with world history yeah. mm. uh, in that way. So, yeah, let's mm. let's talk about that when we come to it. But it is a similar thing in that the thing in the suit isn't meaning to cause yeah, harm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But yeah, it's being yeah. made to yeah. work for another purpose. Yeah. Because, mm. like, these aliens must have been confused as hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, why do they tell us to go to places and touch the humans and then they fall over? I want Ferrero Rocher. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of interesting how it deals with that communication barrier. Mm. Um, just the fact that the fact that they can't talk very well to the astronauts is the their masters. Sorry, is what kind of leads them to, I guess blindly follow the commands because they're trusting them yeah but it's also a limit to the their actual mission and the fact that their language is so different i just really like it Mm. when does the device of the tardis being able to like translate everything come in new series i think is it i I could be wrong but i think it might be yeah i think it's the first time it's explicitly right okay okay um, whether I, it's implied earlier, I can't remember. I guess in this, in the these particular stories, the TARDIS isn't fully no exactly um, awake anyway. So I was just interested because I I think it's something that you could definitely assume if you're watching the classic series that it works most of the time. Yeah, but I do know I did remember obviously in the new series they actually make a thing mm. of it. So yeah. yeah, I mean it's interesting from that point of view to think that the. Um, the Doctor and the humans around him had no trouble communicating with the Sidorians. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, it's it's. I think it's usually something that's just kind of skipped over because it's going to get in the way of the story. Yeah. In the same way that the sonic screwdriver is basically the Doctor's behind a locked door. No, he isn't anymore. Yeah. Um, well, if um, they'd the Sidorians had awakened and they all spoke in like Anglo-Saxon because history doesn't matter anyway but like <laughs> they just woke up and were like what? <laughs> My name is Silurian <laughs> and I am green <laughs> Leaf is humans <laughs> it would have been great because instead of having the like the silly voices they could have had the voice that people do when they do like <laughs> Old English or Chaucer yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The voices that we just did, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, I think I'm going German. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my concept for, for Doctor Who. And I expect a paycheck in the mail soon. <laughs> expect a call from Chris Chibnall. <laughs> I've had a great idea about sexy cyber women. No, Chris. 
<laughs> Let me stop you there. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I don't think I think um, a language barrier would be a bit too socio-political for Chibnall anyway. Oh. Mm. Well, we can we can deal with Chibnall when we deal with Chibnall. Oh, we'll deal with Chibnall. <laughs> <laughs> um, on which note, <laughs> um, on, uh, on that weirdly fascistic note, <laughs> shall we move on to Inferno? Why shall we not? move on to Lava, Lava, L- Inferno, yeah. Oh God, Lava, yeah. Lava. <laughs> I mean, on that note, we never did talk about the title sequence of Ambassadors of Death. Oh, no, uh, we didn't. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I've just realised that I have been referring to the episode wrong the whole time. It should be called Doctor Who and the Ambassadors of Death. <laughs> you just uh, feel, like, confused and attacked when they do it. Yeah. It's part of the, the ambiance. Yeah. But yeah, the title sequence for Inferno is long. Yes, it is a potent metaphor for the story itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, okay, uh, Inferno. Dr. what? Smith. Dr. John Smith. Smith. Yes, of course. And where do you come from, Dr. Smith? Yes, well, this is where we come to the difficult bit. Well? Uh. I come from a parallel space-time continuum. Obviously, he is trying to confuse us, leader. So, well, let me put it this way. Um, I've been transported from another world, uh, one that is running almost parallel to this one. He's unbalanced. No, I see what he's trying to do. He's trying to make us believe that he's mad. But it won't work, my friend. I really, really like Inferno. The winner of the Doctor Who magazine uh, poll for um, the best third Doctor story, uh, whether or not it's the third best Doctor story, the third best <laughs> Doctor story, the best third Doctor story, uh, I don't know, couldn't necessarily say at this juncture, but I think it's a very strong one. It is too long. It is definitely too long. Mm. But I think it earns that length doesn't quite earn full length, but it earns it a little better than some long episodes in that mm. it has a plot progression that kind of requires it to be quite long because the same events need to happen twice mm. in different universes to a greater mm. or lesser extent. There needs to be that explicit mirroring setup, mm. um, and it needs to it needs to make you kind of um, feel the difference between the universe all of the differences between the universes which are quite important to the plot i think it actually weirdly does that quite economically as i'll uh, go into a bit more detail about that in a minute i think Mm. it's still too long but at the same time i think of the really long stories it is definitely one of the ones that kind of is most justifiably a long one so I'm I'm not I do like Inferno. I'm not as keen on it as Jacob and Kieran are. I have to say also as a disclaimer, when Kieran and I watched this, we watched all the episodes back to back, one after the other. Mm, that and was a I bad was decision. already a little bit tired when we started, but we were like, you know, let's watch some Doctor Who. It'll be it'll be lovely. <laughs> and I did still think it was good, but I feel like watching it 
uh, like watching something mm. of that length all in one go was too much. Definitely, so, I like. I wasn't tired when we started out, but I was by the end. It was an experience. So I um I do want to just put that out there so that it doesn't seem like I'm being just just as a reason for why it might be that I'm not so enthusiastic. Mm. I do also think that sometimes when I've been thinking back on it, the bits that I thought were very good have stuck out, and I had also forgotten a lot of the stuff in these episodes that made it drag, but I imagine that that will probably come up when we talk about primords. I had actually forgotten until somebody mentioned them, I think, earlier, that they're not actually called primoids, which is what I'd written, so that's how little... (laughs) That's how little I... Care or acknowledge? I don't think they ever named them. In the no, episode, they don't. Though, so you'd be forgiven for. Uh, oh, not knowing. Up. You know, I'm oh, no. fairly certain because I, the first time we recorded this, I had to check yeah. how it was pronounced as well. In that case, I shall name them the Beastie Boys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's just the name fandom. The fandom has given them, or maybe that's in the script. I'm I not sure. think it's in the credits. Ah, right. Uh, okay. Right. Yeah. No, that would make sense if it was in the script, but not in the yeah episode. I'm pretty but, sure. Yeah. Yeah, and. I'll let I'll 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 let Jacob do his initial thoughts bit before I start like going on more tangents, shall I? Mm-hmm. Do you yeah, wanna sure. Um Yeah, um I'll just get the usual comment out of the way, like a broken record, it's too long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I agree. Um it's it, it handles the length probably the best out of all of them. I think again, it's being very creative with with the Earthbound format. It's trying to do something different uh, by having this parallel Earth plotline set up. And I, th- I think what's really good about that, in particular, is the fact that normally in Doctor Who, you never, you don't always get to see the full scale of the threat. You never mm. get to see like a full apocalypse because um, the Doctor's there to solve it. Or that's mm. that's usually how it is. And in this particular case, because you have one world moving faster than the other, you actually get to see the end of the world uh, and the and the consequences of Stalman's actions. So I think I think that's really good. I find the primords to be a step too far. Uh, I think it, w- it the script would have been better off without them. As mm. far as I'm aware, they were a late addition actually. Okay. Uh, I think I th- I, I think. I don't know if I don't know if Terence Dix added them in, but they certainly I know they weren't in the initial initial mm. scripts, and I, th- I, I the reason why I think they're a step too far is is that I think a lot of the story, particularly with the kind of the fascist parallel world, is is it's about human evil and human error, yeah, and um, I think in that sense it doesn't need uh, you know a sort of uh, quote unquote alien threat. Mm. Um, because the the threat is already there. The humans are the villains. But yeah, I, I'm very positive about it. I I I like how bleak it is. I think mm. we 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 discussed this the first time round, uh, and I think as Caron quite rightly pointed out, it's it's not just that it's bleak. It's that it, it's 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 productive in its in its bleakness. It's not it's not being dark for the sake of it. Like I think it is. It is using bleakness to make a point and. Douglas Canfield directing kind of mm. uh, really nicely complements uh, that that bleakness. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I think the. I mean, I would certainly agree with you about the prime wards. I I tend to assume they were meant to be like 
kind of a manifestation of the the sort of human evil and human yeah. error that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know how well that comes across. Mm. Mm. Um, because they, they're less like, um, this is something you kind of will turn into if you, if they're, they're like the, the Mr. Hyde of your nature that you will kind of devolve into. And more, if you touch this thing, you will become one. They do feel, it, it would kind of make sense if they were a late edition, because they do feel a little bit like, if somebody thought that the episode on the whole with the parallel universe wasn't quite like sci-fi or Doctor Who enough, yeah. and that they needed an extra, like, mm. um, fantastical element to kind of do something with, and I think that they mm. would have been fine just having the the parallel universe as its mm. own I be- thing. I believe, actually, even the parallel universe wasn't in the initial script that was sent in. Oh, okay, which is. Uh, apparently Terence Dix came up with the idea of the okay. parallel universe according to himself uh, oh, okay. <laughs> so whether, whether that's true I don't know but um, yeah um, which 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 makes me wonder what was in the original script um, yeah yeah oh no it will blow up do not do that oh Petra let me touch you without consent oh, the end yeah. <laughs> it was mostly that to be honest but I, I mean, I'm guessing the only the only thing that was in it was um, the, the 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 idea of the drilling project and the yeah. disaster that was going to ensue. Because I know that Don Houghton or Horton, however you pronounce it, um, had been inspired by finding out about this drilling program that I think Russia was trying to undertake a, a program to drill beneath through the Earth's crust, and America had also looked at trying to do it and he tried to get information on it <laughs> and everyone was refusing in the information he was putting in like freedom of information requests or something and all of them were saying no we can't tell you that so then he was like oh this is interesting and wrote a script about it what are but, they hiding from me Prime yeah but yeah I think um, the thing with the Prime Wars as well I guess another reason why I'm quite resistant to them is I find I guess I almost like interpret it as the this very simplistic, early ecological image of the revenge of nature, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, the way yeah. which, like, it starts off with, like, the, the liquid coming up out of the, the, mm. like the wound they've created in the earth, if you like. Having said that, uh, it must be said that um, it is a very early example of a kind of ecological narrative in Doctor Who, which mm. I'd praise, so... Yeah. yeah, I think there's something in there as well. I I've only occurred to me now when you when you say that, but there's something of there's something of the ground that would be covered, nineteen years later in survival as well of the kind of the yeah. devolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean I don't I don't know. I don't think survival does it better. Uh, but survival also is a lot more focused on it and. Uh, is a lot more explicit about it. Very explicit about it. In yeah. fact, yeah. I guess we could. Um, we could maybe talk a bit about the parallel universe and how that works because mm. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. Is this the man? What on earth are you doing in that get-up? Keep quiet! You will find it unwise to be insolent. How did you get inside this establishment? I beg your pardon. How did you get in here? Look, your name is Lethbridge Stewart. Yes. Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. Brigade leader. All right, brigade leader. Have it your own way. And you are Elizabeth Shaw. How did you know my name? You've been spying on this establishment. What are you talking about? Your name! My name? 
You asked me my name after all the years that you and I... Well, I was just going to say um, that I think that it's a bit... I think we discussed before how it's a bit silly some of the signifiers they use to show that they're in the parallel universe, like the fact that Liz is suddenly mm. a brunette. Yeah. And... The Brigadier now has one eye, but presumably that was, like, yeah. scratched out in a vicious bar crawl from his <laughs> evil, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think the eye patch is a, is a step too far as well. I, I tend to assume he was yeah. just so fascist that his eye exploded. <laughs> that makes sense, and I'm adopting it as my personal theory. <laughs> yeah. Um, apart from that, though, like... Um, so, the interesting thing that occurs to me about the the sort of fascist parallel universe is and again i want to think a bit about the context of this episode in 1970 Mm. because 1970 is chronologically closer to nazi germany than we are now to the ussr in 2019 the ussr just as an example Mm. but like it's the second world war is still well within living memory Mm, mm. um like if we think of doctor who as a family show there would be fathers and mothers watching with their children who um certainly would have remembered the war some of whom may even have uh, contributed to the directly to the war effort and beyond that there would also have been people who remembered for instance oswald mosley and the the fascist movements in britain of the 1930s so that is something that's very, very resonant. Um, that kind of imagery is very resonant in 1970. In a way that I think it wouldn't have been in, like, even the 80s, I think. And wouldn't have been for a long period. Would be again now, I think, but for different reasons. And I thought, like, the the way in which the, the fascist universe is presented... I. I think is really interesting because it's really not explicit about very much. Um, it kind of it has these kind of flavors of fascism and kind of trappings, which tell us where we are actually really economically and really quickly, without really needing to be like, oh, history diverged at this point. There are kind of hints towards that, but like, like you know, there's a line about like. Uh, oh, the Republic started in 1940, whatever. But, like, it's still very kind of... Um, it's more of a nod than anything. It's not explicit because it doesn't need to be explicit. And I actually think that's a real strength of it. Mm. Um, it gives you that really quite solid uh, flavouring. And immediately that tells you how all of these characters that we know are going to be different. I like. I mean, I absolutely agree with you that it's it's taken too far in kind of trying to make them visually distinct, um, mm. which I think is just. I wonder if it's a case of kind of making things a little bit simplistic, uh, which this episode generally doesn't do at all. But uh, it's making things a bit too visually simplistic in an attempt not to confuse the kiddies on the assumption that like. Uh, on the, the misapprehension that children would not recognise two different versions of one person. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that that is... I don't think it's something that l- majorly lets down the episode. No, no, I no. think it's it's more just something that's slightly amusing in the way that they chose to make them distinct. I just think it's a... It's, I think they probably didn't need to do it. I think yeah. it's probably unnecessary, and mm. I think that children would probably have understood... 
yeah perfectly well yeah. from context yeah. um i think i think it stands out to me a little bit just by its contrast with the kind of the subtlety of the, of the um, yeah the setting more generally but the fact that for instance there are posters everywhere of like uh uh, some kind of fascist leader who is never directly referred to, mm, mm. but there's there's a sense of that's who this is. Mm. Um, and like it doesn't need to be spelled out. That's mm. clearly who this is. Actually, I've thought of a more sympathetic take on this slight like aesthetic changes, like the hair color, okay. which is actually that um, what we were mentioning, I think, last episode with the fact that if you missed an episode of a story mm. then that's true you mm. didn't know what had happened so actually from that perspective if you're just tuning in and you've missed say the first two episodes that establish the context then it might actually be kind of handy to that's have true, these actually, indicators yeah. so i'm going to assume it was that and you know and mm. um, feel a bit more a bit a bit less sort of derisive about it i think cause... yeah yeah i think that's fair because like and well those visual indicators are very unsubtle they do also immediately communicate this is not the liz you know this mm. is not the, the brigadier you know and mm-hmm. uh, this maybe is the benton you know but you don't really know him at this point so that's fine you instantly know that it's not the real benton because he doesn't sparkle <laughs> with warmth and vitality <laughs> <laughs> That was in the letter. <laughs> the letter from the 500 uh, women in Lancashire. Yeah, they all unanimously <laughs> understood. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the point about the, the posters of the leader is very interesting. I think last time we spoke about this, ah, yes, yeah, Jacob yeah. told me about a, told a, us about a fan take that like, yeah. blew my mind. Well, it was, um, yeah, yeah. So in... Um, the Doctor Who New Adventures, which uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, a series of original novels, the first series of original novels that are not based on TV scripts, that continue the Doctor and Ace's adventures after survival, uh, when the programme's finished. And uh, there's a book called Time Worm Revelation by mm. Paul Cornell, who will go on to write for the new series. Uh, and in that, there's a he meets several of his other selves, including John Pertwee's Doctor. John Pertwee's Doctor says at one point that the man on the posters in Inferno, who's presumably the the leader of this fascist state, um, he recognises his face as one of the faces that he was offered uh, by the Time Lords when he was exiled to Earth. Mm. So presumably implying that in this parallel universe, the Doctor himself might be the totalitarian ruler. Mm. Which is, yeah, an interesting take. It is, Though yeah. not canon, obviously. No, no. Yeah. Um. I, I am kind of intrigued by the idea that maybe what makes parallel universes in Doctor Who is specifically um, when a Time Lord regenerates. Mm. Yeah, that's, mm. that is quite a cool idea. Just because there don't seem to be as many of them as other theories about parallel universes would suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, it doesn't seem to be the case that like every choice makes a parallel universe or something yeah. like that. So I was just sort of like mulling over the idea of the mm. faces. I know that his circumstances of his regeneration are a little bit different, but mm. um, I think it would just be it would be a really like interesting way to think about it. Yeah, um, I like that. 
because there's not that many time lords so there wouldn't be infinite parallel universes but there's enough of them and they regenerate often enough that you'd have yeah and it would explain why the doctor doesn't seem to be in the ones that he's visited yeah true. because he is but he's somebody else yeah and yeah i mean and speaking of which parallel universes are something that is quite rare in at least televised doctor who mm-hmm. i think it shows up more in the kind of the other media the novels and probably in big finish although i don't think i've ever listened to a big finish story involving them like really the only other example than this that i can think of um is the a, a few stories from uh, series two of the new series mm-hmm. specifically rise of the cyberman age of steel and army of ghosts doomsday which involve the same parallel universe so it's kind of not necessarily that relevant i suppose you could argue that parallel universe then comes back in um, Journey's End, mm. um, but yeah, uh, I don't. Want <laughs> I don't know if I would expend the energy. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm not expending the energy to talk about Journey's End right now. <laughs> no, um, Inferno is plenty to talk about. Yeah, it sure is. One other thing I would say about the the fascist universe, which seems to now be the subject of, of Inferno, basically, mm. which is fair enough, to be honest. I think it is the, the big standout thing about the episode, is it also kind of serves, like I, I was talking about with the Silurians, I think it kind of serves as a critique of the military setting. Mm. Mm. Because suddenly we're in a situation where that military setting is really uncomfortable. And the Doctor is, like, very obviously at odds with it. Mm. Um, and that's kind of heightened all the more by us being presented with characters we recognise in different forms. And a lot of that comes down... Actually, I think a lot of it rests on Nicholas Courtney's shoulders. Um, mm. Like we said in the last episode, just generally talking with the Brigadier, that Nicholas Courtney is very, very good. And here he is superb. Yeah. Caroline John is very good as well, actually, and must be mm. said. Um, and again, but what both of them do very, very well is make their the two characters that they're playing distinct, but also recognizably the same person. Mm. Mm. Um, so Nicholas Courtney in particular has kind of mannerisms that are the same across the two characters, which serves to make it actually really uncomfortable looking at mm. the brigade leader mm. um, because he is both is and is not the brigadier that we kind of that we know and love. And in doing so, that kind of implicitly raises some questions about the Brigadier himself. If we can recognise him in this like this fascist military leader, what does that suggest about him? Especially given that um, across Season 7 and including in this story, his relationship with the Doctor has been somewhat antagonistic. Mm. To the point that at the end of uh, the last episode of Inferno, the Doctor explicitly... Uh, compares him to his fascist self albeit like at a point where he's annoyed at him in a slightly childish way but i think it does it raises those kinds of questions questions that the show by the nature of the front format can't really resolve Mm. but i think the fact that it raises them is quite interesting and is one of the reasons why i think the pertwee era especially at this early point is a more self-reflexive a more complex than it necessarily mm. gets given credit for mm. because i think it has those undercurrents i think it's definitely um shows something about the about the negative side of um of a very military stance in that 
in the parallel universe they're a lot further along with the drilling because presumably of the fact that they work the people working there harder yeah and they have a more kind of authoritarian control over them but also apart from the fact that it's sort of diminishing the emotional and physical welfare of their people it's also bringing them closer far closer to Mm. destruction than Mm. in the sort of original universe yeah so I think it's kind of showing how the things that are seen as virtues in the military mindset, like efficiency and hard work, can be taken, can also, on the flip side, have, have this ideology that's very harmful, mm. like, kind of, mm. as their dark counterpart. Yeah. See, it's interesting, because having heard you both say this, I've thought of something which I hadn't thought of before, which is that, this is going to sound very odd, you could say in some ways that the drilling that's at the heart of the episode is a sort of self-reflexive thing or it's a metatextual thing in the sense that it's drilling into the format of the program itself. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's it's drilling into the earthbound format in the terms of the fact that it's literally drilling into the earth. Mm. But mm. also, in a wider sense, the whole episode is because, like you said, it's it's questioning the premise of the Doctor working with the military and so on and all the conversations that that might have. But yeah, that's not developed at all. That's just something I just thought of. But I really yeah. like it though. Yeah, me too. It's really interesting. Mm. Like at the, at the fact that they're kind of pushing, the people in the episode are pushing at the limits of the mm. earth and mm. human knowledge mm. and then at the same time the story itself is pushing at the format and the setup until and seeing how far they can do that before mm. it would fall apart kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a bit of a... I feel like I'm being talked up more on Inferno than I intended to, so I need to counteract it with the guy that keeps like trying to yes. assault Petra and the fact that they end up together, and the fact that in the parallel universe, he's the one who's like standing up for, for the common man or something. And I just don't like it, and I don't have much more to say about it other than mm. that... It's bad and I don't like it. Yeah. 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 Because I've been struggling with how to deal with stuff like this because obviously this episode was made almost 50 years ago now, mm-hmm. which is actually longer than, to raise your point earlier, than between them and mm. the war. Mm. It's been since that episode. Mm. So societal attitudes have changed. Mm. Almost since then, them and the first world war, in fact. Wow. Time yeah. is crazy. <laughs> so. I want to be... I don't want to dismiss things on outdated attitudes just because they are outdated, because it's like 1970, obviously things Mm. have moved on. But at the same time, I found it very uncomfortable. Mm. And I do think that there are probably models of women being treated better in shows and even in science fiction shows at the time. Mm. Like, uh, the original series of Star Trek has its own, like, issues with sexism and consent and stuff. Yeah. But, like, Uhura, at least, will destroy you <laughs> <laughs> on, in some circumstances. But, I mean, there's, like, mm. there's models for women yeah. not just, like, falling in love with a guy because he, like, harasses her in the workplace. Mm. And I don't like it. And I especially don't like the fact that he is the, like, one good dude in fascist yeah. parallel mm. universe. Mm. 
partly, like, I don't have a problem with the fact that any of our leads aren't that person, because I think that actually what's so effective about it is showing how these characters and personalities that we've come to like so much could be drawn into something like that if that was how they were raised. I think that's really interesting. I just wish that it wasn't this specific guy that they made the... What's the main character of 1984 called? Um, Winston. Winston. Yeah. They made him the Winston, kind of. I mean, Winston's also uh, problematic because of who <laughs> he's yeah. named after. <laughs> I haven't read 1984 in years, please. <laughs> oh, no, but I'm more, I'm, more, I'm more just mean like... Um, no, I, I yeah, know. Yeah, not yeah. that that's like a perfect yeah. thing either, yeah, yeah. but he has that kind of role of yeah. being like... The kind of dissident. Yeah. 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 I think... I the last Englishman. Yeah. The the part of the reason he has that role is that he is the person who is external. Mm. Uh, apart from the Doctor. Uh, he's the person who is external to that setting. Mm. Um, so, like, I think that's the main reason he has that. Doesn't make it any better. But... And actually, to pick up on something mm. um, that you said there... Um, like, I think you're right about, like, I I know what you mean about, like, not kind of dismissing something from 50 years ago based on the sexist attitudes, but I think there's, and it's worth, it's worth kind of stating this clearly, there's a difference between acknowledging Mm. something and dismissing it. Mm. Mm. Also, there were certainly more enlightened viewpoints available in the 1970s. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. So, Mm. even in 1970 specifically. So, Mm. it's difficult. I don't know which way to go with it, but I want to bring bring things up like this when they happen. Yeah, sure. Because I think if it makes... Mm. If it's uncomfortable to watch, it's worth acknowledging that. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is in bringing it up, it's not... It's not necessarily saying the episode is bad in terms of the the quality of the writing or the production, but it, it but you can it's it's important to bring it up because you can bring up systemic issues. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know the fact that this is that this is on British television at the time, and that there are even worse examples yeah. at the time says everything about how bad attitudes uh, towards women are at the time, I would say. I mean, it's also worth saying, uh, and we certainly shouldn't forget this, Mm. that the notion of, like, harassing a woman into being your your romantic partner is not something that has gone away in media. In Doctor Who. In Doctor Who, for sure, yeah, but it's just in media generally. Yeah. I think that's... Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more obvious here than it might be in recent examples, but... I think that that's very true. And also, I do feel like even if even if you are listening to this as somebody who thinks that that I that, that we should be sort of not counting this towards the episode's quality even if we're acknowledging it, it was still something that made me enjoy it less, so I'm still mm. going to count mm. it as a negative mm. in my estimation of the media that I'm viewing. Mm. So because that's how people enjoy media. <laughs> because I like to not have to experience that kind of awkwardness ideally mm. and it's not that it was there it's that it's presented as like a, a good thing yeah the path to love mm. and 
thinking independently. <laughs> yeah, or at, at the very least not challenged. Yes, yes, that's true. Well, it's challenged by Petra, but then, then it's <laughs> but not. But then not. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to like put that out there because mm. um, it is something that's a bit of a an issue that I have with this story. <laughs> yeah. It's also not something I've ever heard anyone else mention, which is weird. Uh, in anything I've read about the story, uh, kind of distresses me a bit. I mean, it's possible. I can understand why, if you're consuming a lot of like media from this time period, that this might not be the most egregious example. Yeah. Not that you're necessarily therefore overlooking it, but just that yeah. if it, I think it stood out for me yeah. because we were watching this sort of short burst of a series. Yeah. Mm. Whereas yeah. I think it all depends on what you've been surrounded with. Well, I mean, like I think definitely like having grown up with a lot of 70s TV. I wouldn't say I didn't notice it, um, because I did, but I think after... Because I watched it again after you brought it up, because we spoke about this before we did the episode, uh, and definitely when I rewatched it after that, I could see it even more. Mm. Uh, maybe that's just because I've not seen it for a long time, but mm. I also think you're right when you're... I think if you consume a lot of that period of television... Um, yeah, it, I think it almost... I don't know, I think it can desensitise you, which is a whole other systemic issue, mm, yeah. uh, and why those views are, were propagated and normalised. I like Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like it as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to, like... The thing is, like, I've been saying all this stuff about it, but it's definitely not going to be the lowest on my mm -mm. rankings. And I actually do genuinely think that all of these four stories are very good. Yeah. yeah. And all in different ways show, like, what the potential of Doctor Who is as a show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think this is, like, this is a collection of stories that are very good individually and that do kind of... Yeah, as you as you say as you say, at a kind of crucial turning point for the show, do show up an awful lot of potential and an awful lot of possibility that is for the most part followed up on. Um mm. not consistently, but I mean I was saying about the Sardorians that it introduces things that will all be done better. Mm. Uh, and while I don't think that's necessarily the case for all of these for all of what we've talked about I think the like the potential here kind of for, is really built on. I mean, if we think about like you know Spearhead written by Robert Holmes, who is becomes like a pillar, maybe the pillar of the classic series. Malcolm Hulk, writer of uh, the Silurians and actually co-writer of Ambassadors of Death, uh, writes a lot of poetry and writes also writes a lot of novelizations, as does Terence Dix for that matter. And uh, Don Houghton, I think, more or less vanishes. <laughs> Uh, from the, the face of Doctor Who. Yeah, of, yeah, the only other thing now is the Mind of Evil. That's the oh, only right. other one he does. Oh, I really like Mind of yeah, Evil. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. But I think that's his last script. Yeah. Uh, Ambassadors is uh, David Whittaker's last script. Mm. Um, which, Whittaker being like the kind of creative driving force of particularly the Triton era. So in a way it's kind of, it, there is this kind of real creative changeover occurring in this season. Uh, Ambassadors is a good one to finish. Your... Isn't it though? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a it is a good place to finish. Mm. And since um, since you mentioned the rankings, shall we move on to those? Yeah, sure. All right then. By the way, how's Sutton and Miss Williams? Oh, they've left already. Together? 
Well, I believe he is driving her to London in his car. <laughs> Nothing like a nice happy ending, is there? Okay. Um, I think I'll start. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I did last time as well. Um, so, I'm going to go bottom up. So, at number four in my rankings Ooh. is the Silurians. <laughs> you probably guessed that. I Again, I need to stress, I really like the Silurians. Um, it's a story I would happily sit down and watch. Uh, which is not necessarily the case for quite a few Doctor Who stories. But it does have a lot of problems. Uh, it doesn't quite carry through what it wants to do. I I think I admire it. While I do like it, I admire it more than I like it in some ways. And again, I admire it for its potential. Which is not to say it doesn't do some really cool things that I've mentioned. It doesn't have some really cool thematic elements. But I think... It doesn't quite gel like it should. Number three is Spearhead, um, which kind of comes a little comes lower than I was expecting it to, if I'm honest. I think it's again, it's just a marker of the quality of this season that actually a story I have very few faults with uh, would come third. And uh, as I've said, Spearhead, I almost think of like a a model for the four episode structure of Doctor Who in terms of the way it's paced, and and as a model for the regenerations, I think it is probably the best regeneration story of the um, of the classic series anyway. But um, it's just, I think for me, it just doesn't quite have the hit the heights of the other two. While it doesn't necessarily share some of their faults, particularly Inferno's faults as well, uh, it's also... Yeah, I think I'd see it as just... It's a very consistent story, uh, but one which maybe doesn't have quite the kind of depths of brilliance that uh, the other stories have and that the other Robert Holmes stories have. Uh, Number two is Ambassadors of Death, which was a big surprise for me, as I say, a very pleasant surprise, in that it was a story I came into with very few preconceptions. And I think I knew it was to do with space somehow, and that was about it. Oh, and there was an astronaut on the cover, on the DVD cover. Um, but I purposely avoided like finding out anything else about it, and I'm, I'm quite glad I did that, because it's not something I have necessarily been able to do with that much Doctor Who. But I just enjoyed it an awful lot. It's it's quite, despite obviously being too long, it is still quite nicely paced, I think. It's got... it's. I, I really like the kind of the spy thriller sort of vibes that it has going on, combined with the spacey vibes. Uh, I'm uh, I'm someone who kind of, as I say, quite generally likes the Pertwee era and likes that kind of action thriller thing that it uh, quite often does. And I think Ambassadors is really one of the peaks of that, if not even the peak, maybe. And finally, number one is obviously Inferno. Uh, despite all of the faults with it, <laughs> um, I uh, it, it's weird because I think Inferno is in some ways actually more flawed than Ambassadors or even Spearhead. Uh, I think I think there are more things wrong with it, but I also think it's wh- what it gets right. It gets so right, um, that I can't help but just really really admire it for that. And as I say, it's. The deftness, the kind of lightness of touch with which it's able to portray the um, the parallel universe is, I think, a really remarkable feat. Uh, I like the kind of the general parallelism it's got going on. 
I think it's Pertwee's best performance of the season by quite a long way, actually. Um, and we haven't talked about Pertwee's acting, which I generally think is good. But I think Inferno is one of those examples, like Planet of the Spiders, like you were saying earlier, Jacob, in the previous episode, where he gets kind of pushed to his limits in a sense, and that forces him into a sort of different zone. Also, Nicholas Courtney is fantastic. Caroline John is fantastic. Um, John Levine is, is fantastic <laughs> for his very brief role as Benton. It's um, yeah, it's I. It's, it is definitely one of my favorite um, third Doctor stories. Probably one of my favorite classic series stories. Uh, and I have absolutely no qualms with it topping the Doctor Who magazine poll. So, uh, Bethan, do you want to go next? I can do, yeah. Um, the Demons was robbed. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's purely the Doctor Who magazine poll. Nothing to do with this. Um, I'll do mine from bottom to top, same as Kieran. Unfortunately, my bottom slot also goes to the Silurians. I do love them. I love their spa. <laughs> yeah, I just, again, I these are all stories that I really, really like. And so when it comes to ranking them, I'm just kind of going with most flawed to least flawed in some ways. Um, so yeah, lots to like about the Silurians, but unfortunately it will not be America's Next Top Model. <laughs> Third, I have um, Inferno, which I nearly got talked up on again when Kieran <laughs> did his speech, but I'm going to keep it where I had it. Um, I do really like it. I just don't like the primords. It's very long. I was tired. There's lots of good stuff. <laughs> if I rewatched it on a more alert day, it might go up. Second, um, Ambassadors of Death. Um, I really liked it. Again, I had like no knowledge of what it was going to be about when we watched it, um, but I thought it was really cool. There were lots of interesting ideas, and I think it's executed very well. And then first I have Spearhead from Space, which I feel like is a bit of a cheap move in some ways, because it is like maybe the one that people remember the most because of the Autons, but I think that it is iconic. Partly because people confuse it with Terror of the Autons. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I think it's very good in its own right and very fun, enjoyable story. Mm, cool. Right. So, Jacob. Um, so, in ascending order, <laughs> sounds like I'm doing the National Lottery. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, once again, Salorians, the Salorians is going at the bottom. No. Um, yeah. Well, they like that subterranean. Yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> again, like, as has been already been iterated, I think this is a very strong season. However, the Salorians is just, it's just too flawed. Um, it's got good ideas, but it fails in its execution, I think. Um which is a real shame. And then third, I have Ambassadors of Death. I had a real struggle deciding between two and three. Um, I think they're pretty much even for me. Um, so, yeah, Ambassadors is third, but it could easily have been second. Um, very well directed. Um, again, it's trying to be creative within the constraints of, of the Earthbound format, which I, which I really like. Yeah, and uh, I think... 
uh, it's just just a very very good solid episode. Uh, and then second, I have Spearhead from Space. First of all, it's not too long, which <laughs> <laughs> is nice. Um, very strong regeneration story. Um, very well put together. Um, I think the film gives makes it a real breath of uh, fresh air, and uh, means it's really fluidly uh, directed. Just really enjoyed it. And top uh, surprise, surprise is Inferno. Uh, for all its faults, it's a wonderfully creative story. I think you're absolutely right. That I think all the actors get pushed by by the, by the plot. Uh, in really, in really good and interesting ways, and I, I, I commend it particularly for, as I was saying earlier, being a very early ecological narrative, mm. if quite a simplistic one, um, and also for being bold enough to take on what's quite a, a difficult and troubling issue within the context of what is certainly a family show is often regarded as a children's show. I think wrongly. And and also for being bold enough to, to take on uh, something that's not only difficult, but it's difficult because it's so raw in people's memory. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's, that's my rankings. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So, um, broadly on agreement with the Silurians, <laughs> at least. Um, we, we like the Silurians, just not enough. There should have been another way. So that brings us to the end of our rundown of Season 7. So thank you very much for listening. We will be back soon with an episode, most likely two episodes I should think, at least two episodes maybe, <laughs> on um, Series 1, which, um, to for the avoidance of confusion, is the Christopher Eccleston uh, series of the new series. So, I hope you can join us for that. Until then, I've been Kieran. I've been Bethan. And I've been Jacob. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye.